Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, about one-fifth of U.S. adults are taking care of a family member or friend who needs help. The unpaid work of caring for loved ones who are aging, sick, or living with a disability is often rewarding, but it can also be exhausting, stressful, or take a toll on a caregiver's mental health. These strains have only increased during the pandemic when many services that used to provide a respite for caregivers are closed. We look this hour at caregiving, how the pandemic has affected it, and how to get support. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A new documentary is shedding light on the strain placed on family members caring for ill loved ones. Titled Caregiver, A Love Story, it tells the story of Rick, a California man struggling to care for his wife who is dying of cancer. The decline has been more difficult than I expected. Two, three, four times a night I'm getting up and down. I'm just weary. It's not just a tiredness, physical weariness, it's an emotional weariness too and I feel like my health is deteriorating with hers. Joining me now, Dr. Jessica Zitter, the short film's executive producer and co-director with Kevin Gordon. Dr. Zitter also specializes in critical and palliative care medicine and practices at Highland Hospital in Oakland. She was also the physician and friend of Rick's dying wife, Bambi. Dr. Zitter, thanks so much for joining us. Such a pleasure to be here. So when you first set out to do this documentary, I understand it actually was not meant to focus on Rick, the caregiver. What made you change course? Well, it really is uh, just, I think, a testament to what what's happening in a lot of our hospitals. I have this vision of a good death as a palliative care physician being something that happens outside of the hospital. And so when Bambi and Rick decided to take hospice and go home, I sort of saw that as a success in and of itself. And I am just not very used to following people home. I sort of have this focus inside of the hospital. And, and what I saw didn't really come back to me until Kevin Gordon had put this first cut of the film together. And I saw, oh, my goodness, it's not about a beautiful death at home. It's actually about the experience of this husband. 
And this was filmed a few years ago, pre-pandemic, before COVID. Uh, the strain that caregivers experience really, as you illustrate in the film, is tough to bear. I mean, when your friend Bambi does decide to die at home, it means that Rick leaves his job, becomes her primary caregiver. What role specifically did he take on as primary caregiver? Well, the thing about being a caregiver is you don't realize that not only are you going to probably have a good chance of needing to quit your day job because you're not going to have time to do it anymore, but you're going to start being the nutritionist, the uh, house cleaner, the laundry maker, doer, the childcare specialist. Um, you just take on a whole slew of new jobs that you hadn't really intended to take on. Let's actually hear a little more from Rick right now. I mean, he's just talking here about sort of how the round-the-clock responsibilities are kind of sending him into this state of emotional as well as financial stress and exhaustion. Her strength is diminishing. She needs someone around all the time, and I'm on call 24-7. Even though people are coming to visit, it's not really a respite for me because they have to be trained in knowing what to do. I can't expect them to get Bambi out of a bed and onto a commode, and, and that was a fiasco. We've discussed getting a caregiver, but it's too expensive, and they're not working. We just can't handle that. What did the fact that it would be so costly to get a caregiver or some additional help for Rick tell you, Dr. Zitter, because I know at one point he says that, you know, he did ask for some help. The offer was like two more hours a week, which he didn't think was a lot. And that wouldn't even be covered necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I think that when we send people home from the hospital with, with hospice, we are all a little bit living in a fantasy about what hospice can really do in the allotted time that they are, are paid to take care of people and, 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 their, and their families. They really aren't there to do the laundry and to do a lot of the housekeeping uh, tasks that are so exhausting for caregivers. They're there to do, hopefully, most of the medical nursing tasks the setting up of the vent, you know, the uh, of the nebulizer machine, making sure that the morphine is appropriately dosed, and making sure it's available, and that they've taught the family how to do it. But they're not there to do the grocery shopping, and you know, uh, it's it's. I think sixty percent of caregivers now are doing what what tasks that used to only be done by nurses and doctors, and um, now many many uh, caregivers are doing those as well. So. It's really turned into a situation where that's that's ultimately unstable. When Rick said that he couldn't even leave Bambi to his friends to get her on the commode, there's just certain tasks that are really require more skill that can't really easily be delegated to people who don't have even a little bit of experience. And so he was really doing everything. And, you know, he doesn't get a lot of sleep. He actually does get physically ill. I mean, and, you know, you can't help but wonder, but gosh, what happens to a caregiver when they get sick? I mean, what kinds of options are available to them? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the options that is out there that Rick uh, was able to access through the hospice, but I believe, and um, others can comment on this more, I believe that respite is available even to some some caregivers who don't have the, their loved one on hospice. But respite, respite care, he was able to get a few days of just a support where Bambi was taken into um, a nursing facility and cared for for a few days so he could just regroup. And that is a very important um, 
uh, resource that people need to know about. We actually have a clip of Rick talking about how he did uh, get physically sick, that Bambi did have to go to a care home for a short time. Let's hear him describe it. I can understand why people don't really want to go into a nursing home. It's a hospital room. She didn't really want to go, but she knew that I needed the break. I did feel very guilty. I was relegating my responsibilities towards her to someone else. On the other hand, I was constantly tired. I hadn't had a full night's sleep in months. And just getting a rest that I can come back and I could be more present, I could be more with it. And I was less angry. I could handle it better. We're listening to a clip from Caregiver, a love story, a short documentary on the strain placed on family members caring for ill loved ones. We're talking with Dr. Jessica Zitter, a physician trained in palliative and critical care medicine at Highland Hospital in Oakland. She's co-director of the documentary short. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Are you a caregiver? How has your experience been? How has it changed during the pandemic? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. or at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Dr. Jessica Zitter, I mean, that moment when he says he felt guilty, it really made me think about, A, just that emotion and how intense that must be, but also just, I mean, the time that doesn't exist to be able to process the emotions um, that you're going through with a loved one who is dying or grieving a loved one who isn't who they were, you know, a few months before. Mm, yeah. I mean, there are so many things to grieve and there is so little time to grieve. And I think on top of it, there are just these profound human emotions of shame, uh, grief. I mean, I already said grief, loneliness, exhaustion, anger, resentment. I mean, there's so many things that aren't really in a way, polite conversation, because we have this image of the caregiver as somebody who is supposed to be like Love Story, that movie that was out in the 70s, where you just, you're supposed to be the, you know, you're supposed to sacrifice everything for the, for love. And look, if anyone loved the person he was caring for, it was Rick, he was a newlywed, they were in love. Bambi was a very lovable human being, and they didn't have a lot of negative stuff in their relationship. So this should have been a love story. It was only nine weeks. You know, the average family caregiver does this for four and a half years. So you can imagine that if Rick was fraying and exhausted and suffering these feelings, that that other people are just that much more worse off. Do you think that's part of why, as you've described, this is an essential but largely unseen workforce that we actually know so little about what's happening in people's families as caregivers? Absolutely. I mean, there, there, there's just so much, there's histories of every relationship. So there's there's dynamics that have accompanied those relationships over decades that we just don't even know about that are going to make the experience even more difficult. So to have, you know, psychological, so, social support available for these caregivers who are doing this incredibly important job that sort of <laughs> underlies the fabric of our society because so many people will need care, uh, that I think we need to just start paying more attention to, to supporting them in that way. I'd like to invite Christina Irving to join the conversation. Christina Irving is Client Services Director for Family Caregiver Alliance. Christina Irving, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. I understand that you have used Jessica Zitter's film in groups, not just for people caring for those who are dying, but also for people caring for those with dementia. Can you talk about how the issues are relevant that come up in, in Zitter's film, but also different when caring for someone with dementia? Sure. Yeah, we were lucky enough to be a part of the pilot project that Dr. Zitter um, moved forward where we used the film in a larger workshop about the conversations about what it means to be a caregiver and what type of support is needed and what's available to really encourage caregivers to reach out for those supports and services. And as was said, Rick took care of Bambi for nine weeks, and that's a much shorter time period than most caregivers um, are in that role. And yet that experience of grief and loss and loneliness and feeling like you're not trained for this and there's not enough breaks and not enough support. Those are really common themes across caregiving, whether it's for cancer for nine weeks or dementia for nine years. Um, obviously the toll is going to be um, great when it's over such a long period of time, but those themes are, are really similar. And what are some of the primary roles that people take on uh, when they care for someone living with dementia? It's everything. Um, you become the person who helps with bathing and dressing and toileting and all the personal care. Um, initially, somebody might still be able to do that on their own, but over time, that family caregiver takes on all those roles. Um, they become often the nurse or the CNA who's helping with medications for those who have co-occurring conditions, they also might be managing diabetes or checking on blood pressure levels or other vital signs. Um, they are the one who's helping with the meals and the laundry and the cleaning and also the companionship and the activities. And that's what we've seen a lot of during the pandemic is some of those activities outside the home aren't there anymore. And so it's how do you keep somebody engaged and busy and, and happy and enjoying life when you're at home together all the time. We're talking with Christina Irving, Client Services Director at Family Caregiver Alliance, and Dr. Jessica Zitter, who works at Highland Hospital in Oakland as a palliative and critical care medical doctor, also co-director of the documentary short Caregiver, A Love Story. You, our listeners, are with us, 866-733-6786, the number to call, forum at kqed.org, the email address, or post your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the realities of being a non-professional family caregiver to someone who is ill, aging, or living with a disability. We're joined by Dr. Jessica Zitter, a physician trained in palliative and critical care medicine at Highland Hospital in Oakland, co-director of the documentary short Caregiver, A Love Story, Christina Irving, Client Services Director at Family Caregiver Alliance, and you, our listeners, are with us. 
Are you a caregiver? Has your experience changed in the pandemic? Or what questions do you have for our guests? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. And let me go to Adeline in San Mateo. Hi, Adeline. Hi, Adeline. Are you there? I'm here. <laughs> Great. You're uh, on. Hi. <laughs> Thanks. So my name is Adeline. Uh, I am actually 27 years old, and I am basically my mom's caregiver. Uh, she had a stroke uh, very early on at the age of 57, and everything that you're talking about has been my struggle, um, especially at an early age, taking care of everything, the finances, the caregivers. Like, Luckily, there's IHS through the government, which helps care, pay for some caregivers, but all of it is so much for me because I, I wasn't ready for that step, but there's no one else in the family to do that. So I, I really appreciate that this is bringing everything to light. Adeline, thanks for sharing that. And also, um, Christina Irving, Adeline is reminding me that, you know, family caregivers span all generations, boomers, Gen X, Gen Z, millennials, uh, the silent generation. I was seeing a stat, I think it was from the AARP, that was basically saying that a third of caregivers are 39 or younger and that 6% are from Gen Z, which is essentially about age 23 or so or younger. And it sounds like, Christina Irving, that the number of caregivers is likely to grow, that that's where the trend lines are going. Absolutely. And I think we are definitely seeing that growth in the number of young caregivers and not just the growth in the number of caregivers who are in that role, but just the awareness that this is not only something that affects what has historically been seen as that typical caregiver, a woman in her 50s. That was the image of caregiving that we had for so long. And yet there are a growing number of people in their 20s and 30s who are in this role of a full-time caregiver like Adeline is. And it comes with a huge set of challenges that are unique to this age group because their peers may not understand what they're going through. Um, these are people trying to develop their careers, um, maybe relationships. And so they're in this period of their life that should involve so much personal growth. And they often have to take a step back from that to really take on this role of caregiving. Let me go to caller Deborah in Richmond. Hi, Deborah. Yeah, hi. Um, I work for North Bay Hospice in Solano County. I've been doing this 11 years, and it is so pertinent. I see this all the time. When I come out to do admissions, people often go, well, where are you going to stay? You know, you're going to be here, right? And unfortunately, hospice, we just provide a lot of the support. And what I see as the overarching support is we need to have financial support for these people, for Rick, for Adeline, caring for their loved ones at home. We have programs like Adeline mentioned, the IHSS program through Medi-Cal. That needs to be bolstered. We have programs like FMLA and paid family leave, but those are only job protection or 50% pay. People often have to choose between going back to work or caring for the loved ones at home, which is just tragic. We should not have to make these choices. And the big support that I see is it has to be financial. We have to pay mm -hmm. people a good amount to stay at home. And I have to say, these caregivers, hats off to them. They do so much. What I have learned in years of nursing school, they are forced to learn in weeks of caring for their loved ones under hospice. People mm -hmm. learn, their nurse, learn their nursing hat and more. So kudos to caregivers out there. And the 
way we need to support them, I feel like, is financial at this point. Deborah, thanks for saying that. I mean, uh, Dr. Zitter, your film definitely makes clear that more support is needed, financial and otherwise, and also, you know, that there really is no broad or national strategy for addressing the needs of caregivers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many systems that are involved in this problem and could, if we came together, really stitch together a safety net that could prevent these family caregivers from falling through. And you think about it, you've got the employers and this FMLA. I mean, it's really, it's an unpaid 12-week leave. Well, look, 12 weeks barely will pay for any, you know, substantial amount of what most of these caregivers are going to need. There's there's so little job flexibility that most employers, I mean, most employers don't have flexibility to, Rick, if, if anything, had more flexibility than most as a consultant, but he couldn't even find the time to really do much. And I think, you know, when you think about the healthcare system, I mean, look at me, I'm a palliative care doctor. And yet we are, you know, we're trained to think about holistic approaches to supporting patients, but I wasn't really thinking about the outside of the hospital experience. And there's, you know, hospitals and clinics are a caregiver magnet. We should be identifying these caregivers and then we should be connecting with the systems out in in the community, all the social services and really supporting them to that, you know, community's resource. I mean, there's so many ways that we, these systems can work together to provide more robust support. Christina Irving, I saw that on average, a family in California can spend $7,000 out of pocket toward their loved one's care. But then at the same time, if say they, they want to take a, a a week's vacation or, or a week and a half long vacation that a stay at a care facility could also cost them thousands of dollars as well. Does that sound about right in terms of the actual costs? It is easily that much for many families. The The costs of care of either hiring in-home help, using a care facility are more than most families can afford. Um, so there are respite programs that might help give families a break but they are short term and they're not ongoing and they don't cover the rest of the costs that caregivers might be spending on medical supplies, incontinence supplies, special diet. So there is a huge financial toll on family caregivers. Well, Ray writes, I have a friend who's nearly 98 years old. She's no longer able to care for herself. The cost of hiring caregivers is approaching $5,000 per week. At this rate, it won't be long before her reverse mortgage is exhausted and she's insolvent. Her friends are worried about the possibilities once the money will once the money well runs dry, there does not seem to be a safety net for our aging population. Lawrence asks, can your guests comment at all about how long-term care insurance would affect a situation like this? Christina Irving, long-term care insurance. Long-term care insurance can be an option for some people. Not too many families have purchased it um, and paid into it over the years. It, it obviously comes with its own cost. Um, you have to be able to afford it on an ongoing basis, and that's beyond what some people can pay. And then the quality of the plans varies dramatically. Um, some plans are really helpful for families in paying for in-home care or care facility if that's needed. Other plans, the way they're structured, don't provide nearly the amount of help. Um, so it really varies if it's something if people are thinking about, um, they want to get some really good non-biased advice to figure out, is this the best plan for me? And then to understand how they can actually use that plan if they have one.
Well, this listener writes, I'm a parent to two elementary age children. I care for them full time, including distance learning during the school closures. I'm also the only caregiver to my father and stepmother. He in the late stages of metastatic cancer and she ailing from age related issues and both immobile. While I feel blessed to be needed on all sides, I often feel overwhelmed by the disparate responsibilities and wary emotionally by my parents' impending death and my own sadness of not being able to fully, to be fully available for my children. And for some reason, all those feelings bring on a lot of guilt. Wow. Well, joining me now is Donna Benton, Research Associate Professor of Gerontology and Director of the Family Caregiver Support Center at USC's Leonard Davis School of Gerontology. Donna Benton, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for um, inviting me. I, I, um, this is such a um, needed uh, topic right now. It really is, Dr. Benton. And also what we heard in that comment was also balancing the added stress, the added layer of stress that yeah. you know the pandemic has, has brought on families. Can you talk a little bit about how, how, what you've heard and, and how people are experiencing the pandemic who are caregivers? I mean, um, I know Christina has uh, talked about this earlier, but um, one of the things that we're really hearing from families is exactly what was described by your listener, which is feeling um, stress because they are being pressured from both ends. And while they're grateful for being able to have the uh, multiple generations together and alive right now, uh, some of that does come with feeling maybe a sense of guilt that you don't feel like you're doing everything for everyone mm -hmm. at all times, which none of us can do. And I think that part of that is setting ourselves up with expectations of being, um, you know, superwoman or superman type of image for caregivers. And so um, when we begin to feel guilty, it's so important for us to remind ourselves that we are absolutely doing the best that we can, given the situation, the information we have. And right now in this uh, pandemic, given how resources are have been shrunken so much for so many families. So right. um, part of the guilt is usually more around things that you think you should have done. And what we might be feeling more is regret that we can't do more. But um, being able to understand that uh, it's not anything that you are generally responsible 100% for. And so right. asking for help becomes really important during this time. And you touched on financial stress, and we're, of course, hearing about people losing work or having their salaries yes. reduced while they're taking this on. It also sounds like it's much harder to have rotating caregivers, right, because you're so concerned about oh. anyone bringing the virus in. Absolutely. I mean, that's where before we could have um, maybe a, a neighbor pop over or um, be able to pay for a caregiver every once in a while or have a volunteer even come in um, to relieve some of that. We had teachers when we could send our, uh, our you know, our, our loved one to classes and this, this, so the younger kids could be in school and, you know, you didn't have everyone together all the time. So um, we can't just let anyone in. And so when, if we remind ourselves that we're actually protecting our family by during this time. Um, I don't think it, it doesn't mean that we don't still want those breaks, but it is a reminder that we are trying to preserve our, our family. And Christina Irving, my understanding is that a lot of adult day programs, adult daycare programs are actually closed because of the pandemic as well. 
how much of a of an impact has that had on families? That's had a huge impact on the families that are using them. Adult day programs are an amazing resource. They provide a respite break for family caregivers and then socialization and activity for their participants. So they are a hugely beneficial program to both the caregivers and um, the, the care recipients. And because it's a group setting, they've been closed right now. And I know many of them have done the best they can to offer activity programs virtually and to be checking in and, and providing support. But it's a benefit that is definitely missed by families right now. And let me go to Wynn in Menlo Park. Hi, Wynn. Hi. I agree 100% with all of the guests and the comments that they're making. I was a caregiver for my wife when she had dementia. For three years, I took care of her until I finally moved into a memory care unit because I couldn't uh, do the things that she really needed to do. But when I finished analyzing what had happened to me, the one thing that surprised me was all our friends dropped away. Very slowly, we stopped hearing from them. We didn't have visits. We didn't have phone calls. And by the end, I was basically by myself and had lost a complete generation of friends. Wow, when that is really an interesting and important point, and, I, and I'm sorry to hear that that happened. There was some sense, um, Dr. Jessica Zitter, during your film, you know, initially, Bambi had a lot of family members and friends around her, but there seemed to be far less of it as the film progressed. Yeah, it, you know, um, Bambi's family all lived overseas. And in fact, two of her sons who had flown in and stayed for several weeks, both of their wives were pregnant, so they had to fly back. Um, but that is, I think, uh, you know, Christina uh, and Dr. Benton can, can uh, talk about this, but I think that's a very common phenomenon that in the beginning, people rally. And then when it gets starts to get exhausting and tedious, um, I mean, people still show up. People showed up you know, from our community with to Rick's house. And they would come in, they would sit for a few minutes, they'd bring a casserole, which probably couldn't even fit into the fridge. And then they'd leave, but people didn't really know what to do, even though there was good intent there. So I think there's something to be said uh, for people starting to, you know, in, in, in communities, starting to recognize this issue and understand that it's important that they figure out how to address the needs of that particular caregiver and what they can offer and figure out what they can offer that will really be helpful in just even a little bit decompressing that person's work uh, work responsibilities that particular day. Dr. Donna Benton, are you hearing about more people also wanting to move family members or at least earlier in the year wanting or last year wanting to move family members out of nursing homes or long-term care facilities because of worries about COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, yes, we actually did have family members that would uh, reach out to us and say, is it safe? And they were trying, they were struggling with the decision on bringing someone away from the nursing home because of the high rate of infection in the early days um, versus the person staying. Plus, they also were afraid that they wouldn't um, be allowed to see the person anymore, so they couldn't continue to monitor their care. Um and, and that's a very difficult decision because in some ways the nursing homes certainly were disproportionately impacted by um, the pandemic and, and for COVID. And in other ways, once the once it got under control and now with vaccines, they're the first ones that are getting the vaccines. They're the ones where there's um, better PPE control than perhaps sometimes in the house. And also the caregiver may not be um, physically, emotionally, financially um, ready for the uh, transfer of costs and, and emotional 
labor and physical labor of when they bring their relative home who needed that 24 seven care. Um, and so we kind of out of panic say, let's just pull everybody into the same house because we feel, you know, home is, is a safe place. There's no place like home. And Christina Irving, you were, we were talking earlier about how the trend lines are moving towards more people becoming caregivers. Do you think that's been accelerated through this pandemic a, for the reasons that we were just talking about with people's concerns about long-term care facilities, but also because of complications related to COVID? I think there's a good chance that we will see more caregivers. Um, you know, there's so much that we don't know about the long-term effects of COVID right now, but we're hearing from people that they're experiencing symptoms um, ongoing. And what level of care might those individuals need, especially if they have underlying health conditions and then I think there's the um, kind of more low, lower level caregiving that we have seen happen. That's been really wonderful to see. Um, but, you know, when you have people who are in those high risk groups, older adults or people with disabilities or, or other health conditions, uh, other family members are stepping in to help with grocery shopping or bring by meals to minimize their exposure. And that, that is a role of caregiving. Um, it may not be doing all the personal care, but it is providing that type of care in, in terms of meals and grocery stores and picking up prescriptions from the pharmacy, all things to make sure that somebody stays as safe as possible, um, given the level of risk right now. Well, Carson writes, I'm a 27-year-old man caring for my mom who's in late stages of Alzheimer's disease. I've been caring for her for two and a half years. It has become so difficult over the last six months. She's become resistant to any sort of hygienic task, toothbrushing, hand washing, etc. She started physically lashing out at me, and it's so hard mentally, emotionally, physically. My heart goes out to everyone struggling with helping a family member. What do you say to people? We just, uh, we're coming up on a break, but uh, what do you say to people, Christina Irving, who are experiencing this? I mean, my, my heart goes out to him. I think those are stories that, unfortunately, we're hearing so much more of. Um, right now. And you know, I encourage him to reach out for as much support as he can, connect with other caregivers through a support group. Um, depending on where he lives, reach out if it's in California to one of the caregiver resource centers, it's out of state to one of the National Family Caregiver Support Programs, but know that you're not going through this alone as hard as it is. And so any support you can get is is so needed right now and important for, and, for yourself as the caregiver. And we'll delve more deeply into what support is out there with Jessica Zitter, Christina Irving, and Donna Benton after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about caregiving with Dr. Donna Benton, Research Associate Professor of Gerontology and Director of the Family Caregiver Support Center at USC Leonard Davis School of Gerontology, Christina Irving, Client Services Director at Family Caregiver Alliance, and Jessica Zitter, a physician and 
trained in palliative and critical care medicine at Highland Hospital in Oakland, co-director of a documentary short called Caregiver, A Love Story. And you, our listeners, are with us sharing your experiences, questions, comments. 866-733-6786 is the number. Again, 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org is the email address. And you can also post on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Let me go to Christopher in Berkeley. Hi, Christopher. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. What's on your mind, Christopher? Oh, I just uh, really uh, appreciate your show. I've been listening here uh, this morning, and uh, I'm a caregiver for my mother. Uh, she's uh, 78. I've been caring for her uh, for, since 2003 um, when she had an aneurysm, and uh, she was caring for my grandmother. Uh, so she was um, second generation caregiver, um, and uh, currently she's um, living in the house that she was born and raised in, and I'm maintaining all that. Um, and uh, working with IHSS, uh, I'm a provider. She's the uh, recipient, and um, it's been a challenge to try and do this um, through the pandemic and um, all the feelings that everybody has expressed um, are felt every day um, when you're so deeply entwined into caring for somebody. Um, And it's a job that is probably the most unique job ever in the world. Uh, and I say that because it's a job that you took for love. That was your, you know, that was your resume is that you, you took the job because you care about the person that you're caring for and, um, and they deserve that. And, you know, in this case, it's my mother who brought me into this earth and, you know, it's, it's on the one hand, the most honorable thing that I think I could ever do, but also, the most difficult. Um, and, uh, I just thank God for, uh, for, uh, the family caregiver Alliance and the Alzheimer's foundation and, and all the people that I've reached out to, um, throughout the years, um, for help. Well, well, Um, thank you. Uh, Just, uh, yeah, sorry, go, go ahead and finish your thought. Uh, that's really all I had to say, and I uh, just wanted to put that out there into the into the airwaves and into your guys' conversation, and um, I'll keep listening. Um, if you have any questions for me, I'm right here. Well, Christopher, thank you for sharing that. I think you really articulated beautifully the complexities of this experience, the nuances, both its joys and rewards, Donna Benton, but also, you know, it, it's its stresses and its difficulties as well. And uh, yes, sorry, go right ahead. Oh, I I was just going to say, I mean, I think that, as you said, you know, first of all, thank you for sharing that, that um, your experience with us, because um, it's so difficult, as you mentioned. But, you know, one of the things is we do talk a lot about the stress, but we know that, um, as he said, the resume is love. 
Um, the resume is a sense of uh, this is our family. This is what we do. Um, people have, are sometimes under the myth that we don't take care of our own. And yet every time, every cultural group that I speak to, they always say, well, you know, other cultures may not, but we care for our older adults. We care for our relatives. And uh, there really isn't someone who doesn't feel like they need to care for a family member or friend when they're in need. I think what we've heard, um, when we start this uh, journey of love is that we forget that it's a journey. Sometimes we often think that we're beginning and it's more like a sprint, but it's a um, marathon. And so we have to use different coping skills. We have to call on our community in a different way than we would if it was just short term. And I think that that's why um, sometimes our families and friends fade away because in, um, we don't know how to continue to ask. And, and also the, the our friends don't know how to continue to provide the level of care that maybe we saw as intense in the beginning. Well, Ken writes, I cared for my mom who developed dementia for a number of years. I recommend that caregivers keep an eye on their own mental health. The continuous stress can lead to depression. Reaching out to others who've been in the same situation helps. Kathleen writes, one factor that is really, really difficult for caregivers, you are absolutely tethered to the home. You feel like you can never, ever leave the home. It feels so isolating. And then this listener writes, how do we support our caregiver siblings? My sister lives near our parents and provides all caregiving to our 80-year-old parents, one who is incontinent. Funds are not a big issue, but my parents refuse a day nurse or house cleaning. My sister's husband has MS. She's generous and caring to a fault and will not insist on her self-care. What is the approach here? Anyone have any advice for, for this listener about how to support her caregiver sibling? I don't know, Dr. Zitter or Christina Irving, if you have any thoughts as well. Sure. I, I think it's, it's wonderful that she's aware of her sibling's role as a caregiver and wanting to step in. I think, you know, giving her sibling that space to talk when she needs to, letting her know that she's there, um, maybe offering some suggestions of here's a few things that I could do for you, which would be the most helpful. And caregivers are often worried about burdening those in their life. Um, so letting her sibling know that I'm here anytime you want to talk, anytime you need to vent or complain, um, and that these are things I want to do for you. And it, it sometimes takes time. Well, Jeanette writes, I think seniors in high school should have a holistic class on death and the process in the USA. Also, if we're going to forgive student debt, there should be an AmeriCorps program to be caregivers in the community to help relieve their student debt. Our country is blind to these needs. Jessica Zitter, I think I've heard you suggest similar things that really we do need to have a course on, on death, dying, aging in this, in this country. Huh. Yes, I think there are so many topics that we tend to want to just avoid and pretend don't exist, including the fact that we will all die. And the fact that most of us, um, pretty much all of us will at some point be recruited to be family caregivers for a long period of time, a short period of time, the demographics are just going in that direction. And so I think given those realities, it's really, really important that we bring these issues up with our young people, uh, whether they're in high school uh, or, or college. I think every person should graduate high school with an advanced directive. I think, you know, people really, this is a time for us to start increasing the literacy of our community around these issues, and that will allow us to do better problem solving. Let me go to Stephanie in Santa Clara. Hi, Stephanie. Hi there. Hi, you're on. Um, I'm 
I've been listening to all of your callers, and they break my heart because what I hear is is so much of the love there was between the patient and the person getting and the caregiver. And especially for Wynn, I really understand the whole thing of your friends and family falling away as things get more difficult. However, I'm kind of taking it on the dark side. My husband, I had a stroke 25 years ago, and I'm I'm good. I have some cognitive issues, but, you know, I could take care of the world. My husband developed uh, multiple myeloma, and he was given two years to live. And I thought, as bad as it was between us, you know, I will do, I will do by well by him. I'll take care of him. This will be good. This will be like the best two years of his life. And he lived 15 years. And over that time, not only did his body fall apart uh, cognitively, he would refuse anyone else providing care. He completely denied that he was in the process of dying. He always thought he'll be the first person to overcome this disease. And consequently, it led him to do a lot of insanely crazy things. Um, So I couldn't, not only could I not leave him alone, there were times when it was dangerous to be around him. Uh, One time after surgery, I heard a strange noise from his room, and there he is sitting in bed with his Glock, loading it. And he's high on morphine, and I have no idea what's going on. Um, Well, he was emotionally abusive etc., etc., and I hung in there, and I kept trying, and I kept trying, and the friends fell away because when they'd start to hear these stories, who wants a part of that? Um, the neighbors, uh, one neighbor one day babysat for us. I bless him for that. I got away completely for a day, but I really wish there were, how do I say this? I wish as a caregiver I had a beeper on me that said, oh, my God, help, this is worse than before, and I've become... Um, accustomed to it, um, the gaslighting, he's seeing the doctor and telling me one thing but not telling me what the doctor's telling him. Um, well, Stephanie, yeah. I think you are really, artic- you know, you're really sharing the, the degree and the severity of that situations can get to. And also, you know, reminding me, um, Donna Benton, of the point that you were making about how you know, this is a marathon, right? And a lot of times we sometimes think we're going in for a shorter period of time than we really are. I mean, Stephanie, thank you for sharing that. And, and you know, also she's bringing up just what are some potential solutions? I mean, what, what Donovan, do people need right now? What do caregivers need? What are the kinds of policies or solutions that you think are, are necessary for people who are providing caregiving in this country? Because we also know that the impact of it is also you know, not felt equally across the board as well. Right, right. And, and you know, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I, I know, at least in California, we have a master plan for aging. And some of the things that um, have come up is that we have to have a way, if we want to move for home and community-based services, we have to provide enough support for family caregivers in the form of um, ongoing training and education for families that is easily accessible to all communities in language um, in, and culturally relevant ways. Uh, we need to look at, because most caregivers are in, the, you know, in their 40s, late 40s, mid-career, um, and so um, more than half of the majority are working, and that number is going to continue to go up. So we need to really look at what we don't have in this country, which is a 
overall family leave program and policies that support paid family leave. Um, someone suggested, you know, AmeriCorps type programs that allow for because uh, for caregivers to have some type of compensation when you're taking so many times years off um, there we need to look at retirement for family caregivers in that you don't get to pay into social security if you leave the job force during that time but you're working full time and more um, for a family member um, and you know we always you know these are things because we say it's family um, it becomes an expectation in our society, but um, we've changed in our society. Family sizes have gotten smaller um, over the years, and we so where before there might have been five to six people to care for an older member of the family. Um, in the next twenty years, that's going to be down to one to almost one to two, mm. maybe one caregiver. Um, and there's a huge shortage of paid professional caregivers to even help provide some respite for for our families. So as a country, we do have to look at policies around um, insurance, what we were talking about, long-term care insurance, which is not affordable for the vast majority of people. But um, there are ways that we can make it affordable and start it early in our life. Um, as a benefit for everyone so that we uh, are able to have that type of insurance that's going to be needed for all of us as we live longer. Um, because we're all living longer and we want to live longer with more healthy days, but we um, as a society probably will have more chronic diseases. So we need to be able to address that because as we get older, we'll still age we'll live longer, we may have more chronic diseases. And so we need to be able to address those needs um, for us to help maintain ourselves in our homes comfortably, which can include insurance, paid family leave policies, sick leave policies, which we don't have now nationally. Um, so there are a lot of policies that yes, each state can do and California is moving forward and looking at that. And I know that there will be a master plan for aging will be, um, announced hopefully in the next couple of weeks. I think everyone should look at that and see what those recommendations are and then help um, say, you know, when you think to yourself, there ought to be a law, come on, let's get it out there <laughs> for ourselves. And again, Donna Benton is director of the Family Caregiver Support Center at USC Leonard Davis School of Gerontology. Christina Irving is client services director at Family Caregiver Alliance. And Jessica Zitter, physician trained in palliative and critical care medicine at Highland Hospital in Oakland. And you, our listeners, are with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Christina Irving, I'm struck by, struck by something that Donna Benton is saying in terms of not only are we more likely to become caregivers, but that that we're facing potentially the shortage, or we may already even be in one, of paid caregivers. Exactly. And I think we see that uh, discrepancy in areas that are high cost. So in the San Francisco Bay Area, we see that as a problem um, pretty regularly where home care agencies and often through the IHSS program, which pays for in-home care under Medi-Cal, there can be a shortage of paid workers. And so families are really struggling with trying to find somebody. Um, who do I have come in when I want to take a break? Or if I still need to be working full-time and I need to bring in a paid home care provider, it just adds another layer of stress to an already very stressful situation. 
And then, well, Suzanne writes, I was a long-term caregiver here in California. Other countries do it so much better. France, for one, provides a visiting nurse and someone to clean food, shop, help you dress, thus allowing people to live at home where it's also cheaper. People can live fuller lives. What would you add to what Donna Benden was saying, Christina Irving, about the kinds of policies and changes that we need or strategies that we need? I mean, I would emphasize everything she said, that we just, we need more policies. And this is definitely something at the end of um, Dr. Zitter's film of, of we need a national strategy. We need something that is more universal, not something that varies so much state by state, or even depending on sometimes which county you live in, what programs are available. Um, it makes it very difficult for families to navigate through and to figure out what am I actually eligible for and what's out there. Um, and it's just, it's not sufficient to fully support the immense value that that family caregivers provide. Well, Patricia writes, 10 years ago, I had to retire early in order to care for my parents in their home. Each had some degree of dementia that over time increased. There was no downtime for me, even at night. My father woke every 90 minutes like clockwork, which meant I only got about an hour of rest between his awakenings. It was the most exhausting time of my life, yet it was a true blessing to be able to give back to them and to have several years with them serving as their loving advocate. After all, they did that for me until I left for college. Florence writes, a program that can support caregivers and their loved ones is PACE program for all-inclusive care of the elderly. This is a Medicare and Medicaid benefit which provides full medical and social support in the home. Adult day health, transportation, medication are all included as our palliative care and hospice. And Alan writes, even though there doesn't seem to be any time left over, it's critical to take care of yourself too. If you are exhausted physically or emotionally, you won't be able to take care of anyone and someone will need to take care of you. A little time alone to rest, even time to do something you enjoy can go a long way to keep you going if possible, but with care recipients who cannot be left alone, it must be especially difficult. Um, well, Donna, Benton, just leave us with one final thought. I know you were a caregiver to your grandmother and maybe your mother. What was one small thing that just meant everything to you? And we just have 20 seconds. Um, it meant everything to me to be able to give back to both my grandmother and my mother. And um, even though there were struggles for me during that time of balancing work and caregiving, um, I am very grateful that I was there for them. Donna Benton, Christina Irving, Jessica Zitter, thank you all. Again, Dr. Zitter's documentary short is Caregiver, a love story. Christina Irving was with Client Services, uh, Client Services Director at Family Caregiver Alliance. And Donna Benton is with the USC Leonard Davis School of Gerontology. Thanks to our listeners for their stories. Thanks to Judy Campbell for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.